Good morning. I am going live this morning with Dr. Mira Shaw, and I'm going to find her very soon. This is always my favorite part. This is our first morning Instagram live, so let me know what you guys think. And as soon as she's in, I will add her. Um, if you're here and you're watching, feel free to comment if you have a question that comes up as we're talking and I'll try to get it worked in. We had a lot of ladies um, submit questions ahead of time. I'm gonna be answering those, but if something piques your interest, feel free to comment and, and we'll try to work it in. Good morning. Good morning, Tracy. Oh my gosh, look at, you're like so official with your diplomas behind you. <laughs> I wish I could say they were mine. They're actually all my husband's. <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. You should have been like, yes, this is my collection. Mine are all in my office at work. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it's so nice to finally meet you. So for anybody who doesn't know, I actually work with Dr. Shaw's husband, Dr. Shaw, um, at Stanford. So he is an oncologist and then I cover different for different oncologists and Millie, come here. And so he's wonderful. I, I love working with your husband. And then I had heard that you were in fertility work and I was working on a, an article about how to support a friend going through infertility and it all just kind of came together. And I feel like I've always had so many questions around fertility. There's a lot of rumors and I've heard different things, even from nurses as patients, like being told different things about how long you have to wait to try again after miscarriage. So we're going to get to the bottom of all of them today. Um, and you sent me a really amazing bio. You're like such a badass, Dr. Shaw. <laughs> so I, I posted this earlier, but for anybody who doesn't know, I'm going to kind of skim it because you're quite accomplished. But um, you currently work as a reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist at Nova IVF in Mountain View. That's private practice, I'm assuming. Yeah. Got it. Um, you got your undergraduate degree at UC Berkeley. You got your medical degree at Stanford, residency in OBGYN at UCSF. Then you went back to Stanford. I like still don't know what doctors do. There's so much schooling involved. So so many years of training. I don't I really count. know what all of this means, but it just, it's very, <laughs> a lot of years and very impressive. And then I like your interests. So you are interested in fertility preservation for cancer patients, pregnancy loss, reproductive genetics, and ethic differences in IVF outcomes, which I think is the most interesting area of IVF and modern medicine, because there's there's so much like, I don't not, I won't say gray area, but then like you get instances like Octomom, which I want to ask you a little bit about where people are like, okay, we don't know, but then that's definitely too far. So yeah, a lot of, it's actually, the research that I did was actually in ethnic differences, oh. but I'm also, but I'm also interested in ethics. So, <laughs> so we can I'm cover really, all the topics. <laughs> I'm not a morning person. And I will tell you, I was looking at that and I was like, is that ethic? It is. You did write ethnic difference. We can cover it all today. No yes, problem. Yes, <laughs> please. Okay. Well, let's just dive right in because we had a lot of questions submit. So we're going to be putting you to the test. And you just had a baby, right? I did. He's about two and a half months. My Sadie is four months or five months. So. Oh, congratulations to you too. Thank you. Yes. And you have all three boys, right? I have all three boys. And my husband is one of three boys. So <gasps> Really? Yes. That's so funny. <laughs> There's Are a you... very high gender ratio imbalance in favor of boys on his side of the family. So, okay. Yeah. Actually, I have an on the fly <laughs> question. I, okay. I remember like with Napolitan 
or whoever that that the man decides the gender like yes. their dna but yes. is there any kind of like genetic pat patterning to like what you're talking about how your husband there's not no it's it's 50 50 every time but oh yeah okay but so it doesn't <laughs> although matter i wish i was i was almost 100 percent sure when i got pregnant this time that I was going to have a boy, even though I'm, I know the statistics and I knew my odds were 50, 50. I just, I just knew it, <laughs> oh but I love being the, a boy mom and I love having three boys and we just have a lot of energy in the house. So I apologize in, in advance if one of my kids oh. comes flying into the room, but no. I mean, I love to see them actually, but that is so fun. My, um, one of my good friends, Deborah just had her third boy and she was saying, Oh, you know, I'd love a girl, but it's kind of really cute to have like the Murdoch brothers and <laughs> see like a little gaggle of boys. So yeah. very cute. Um, so what is a reproductive endocrinologist and how are reproduction and endocrinology related? I have no idea the answer to this question, but it's a, like, I know that, um, what is there's a diabetes medication that you give. Yeah. So what is the Yeah. So a, a reproductive endocrinologist is somebody who has completed medical school, a four-year residency in OBGYN. So we could practice obstetrics, gynecology, but we do an additional three years of training in a fellowship um, in reproductive endocrinology. So under OBGYN, there are many subspecialties. There's like high risk, you know, medicine. There is, you know, adolescent GYN. There is GYN oncology. Um, and then REI or reproductive endocrinology is another fellowship that you can do after your general um, OBGYN residency. So in my fellowship, I do 18 months of clinical training in REI. And then I do 18 months of research. So all REIs, are have done a thesis project you know mine was in reproductive genetics and i was interested in looking at um, pregnancy loss and causes of pregnancy loss and genetic causes specifically mm -hmm. um, but what that really makes a lot of us is very evidence-based in our practice because we've done so much research we know how to critically look at data um, and we have done research ourselves so so that's kind of what an rei is <clears throat> and then in terms of you know reproduction, it is an endocrine process. So, you know, in order for a woman to get pregnant, in order for a woman to have normal menstrual cycles, there's actually a hormone access that has to be intact. That starts with the pituitary gland in the brain. So the pituitary gland secretes lots of hormones. An endocrine organ is essentially any organ that secretes hormones that are then transported to a different part of the body to do something. So the pituitary gland in your brain is going to secrete lots of hormones, but one of the hormones it's going to secrete is LH and FSH. Those are hormones that go through the bloodstream, go to the ovaries, and then the ovaries then in turn secrete sex steroids like estrogen and progesterone that then act on the uterus. So in order, when a woman tells me that she has normal menstrual cycles, meaning they're at a regular frequency, I can already tell her that her hormone access is working. The hypothalamus and pituitary gland are working. And um, sorry, these are my husband's AirPods. So I'm just kind of figuring out the <laughs> how they stay in. Um, and, you know, the ovaries and uterus, they're all working together. Um, and that ent entire system is intact. So that's why reproduction is very much an endocrine process. And to understand the whole underlying mechanisms in, of infertility, we have to really understand all of those hormones and how they work in the body. And the thyroid then is part of that access. 
It's not directly part of that access, but the pituitary gland also secretes hormones to the thyroid. And the thyroid really is a hormone that acts on almost every system of our body, but one of them is our reproductive system. So whenever there are infertility issues or even menstrual irregularities, one of the first things we look at is checking the thyroid hormone because if that is either too high or too low, that can affect the cycles and then in turn affect ovulation and infertility, cause infertility that way. Hmm. Okay, that's that's a good question. I don't know if it's the next. Okay, do you really have to try to get pregnant for twelve months before seeking help? As you were talking, I was like, oh, maybe someone should make sure that they have all of like at the beginning of trying to get pregnant, they should do like all of their regular labs, including thyroid mm -hmm. function, to make sure you're looking yeah. good. Yes. So you know, so this is actually age dependent. So if a woman is under thirty five then if you were to see your primary care doctor or OBGYN, they would actually tell you to conceive or try to attempt to conceive for 12 months. But that's under the assumption that you have an ovulatory cycle every month, which means that that woman has regular menstrual cycles. If a woman has irregular cycles, then no, absolutely don't wait the full year. You want to see your doctor ASAP, because that means that there, we know that there's an underlying ovulation issue, and that needs to be assessed and figured out so that there can be treatments to help that woman ovulate more regularly. Um, but assuming she has normal cycles and she doesn't have any underlying medical history that would indicate that she's at a higher risk for infertility, then most doctors would tell that woman to wait the full 12 months. Now, if she's over 35, then that actually gets cut down to six months. And so for six months, if she and her partner have not been able to conceive, then she should see a fertility specialist. But I will tell you that I get uh, you know, so many phone calls from friends and family members who are on month two or three or uh, trying to conceive and they're like, oh my goodness, nothing's happening. What do I need to do? And, you know, first I kind of reassure them that every month in general for a couple, they have about a 15, 10 to 15% chance of getting pregnant. So mm -hmm. it's not a very efficient process. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, and, and unfortunately, you know, there's, there's reasons for that, I, I think too. But that's why if you kind of do the math, cumulatively over the course of 12 months for a young couple, about 85% of them will eventually conceive it. Most of them are not going to conceive the first or second or third month. Most of them are probably going to conceive within the first six months, actually. And then the per cycle chance of getting pregnant after month six drops a little bit, but it's still fairly good. And that's why we want to really try to avoid fertility medications if possible, even though we know they're safe. It is better, we believe, for a couple to get pregnant naturally. Um, so, you know, it's best to wait, you know, that full six or 12 months, depending on the woman's age. But I do believe, and of course, I think I have a different perspective because I see couples who have um, been trying a long time. And then we find after a year of trying that there's a clear male factor, the sperm counts are extremely low, then that couple didn't really need to wait the full year. So I do think that knowledge is really reassuring and powerful for couples to kind of go into the process of family building, really knowing what their chances are. And maybe at the beginning, if especially if they know they want to have a large family, I think just planning that out and knowing that, hey, you know, even if best case scenario, they got pregnant in six months, then it's a nine month pregnancy. And then there's a year of, you know, having the baby and getting used to that and adjusting and breastfeeding and not being able to get pregnant for that year. Um, so, you know, there's going to be at the minimum two year intervals between pregnancies. So I think it if can you're... be, but that isn't always the case. <laughs> True. <laughs> it should be, though. But yeah, it's not always the case. And, and so the, the bottom line is that I think that if 
you know, um, you did want to get that information sooner than the six or 12 month mark. I don't think it's unreasonable to at least get a semen analysis for your partner, you know, do a, a basic um, ultrasound to look at the anatomy of the ovaries and the uterus, check the thyroid, you know, check the hormones to make sure everything's working. And certainly if you have any concerns that you might have risk factors, and we could go into that later if there's time. But for example, if a woman knows that she has endometriosis, which is an extremely common condition, a lot of women don't know they have it, but one of the hallmark symptoms are extremely painful menstrual periods, mm -hmm. um, which a lot of women have. And so they might have endometriosis that can affect fertility in a number of different ways. But you know, again, they don't want to wait the full six or 12 months before they seek help because they might have a clear reason to need fertility medication to start that earlier on. And actually, I'll jump ahead because what you mentioned endometriosis and somebody mentioned, why isn't the ERA test offered more widely in fertility clinics? This changed our outcome. And then I wasn't sure if that was an endometriosis receptiva test. Is that what that is? Okay, so there, there's um, kind of stepping back for anybody who hasn't heard of these tests. So when we're doing a fertility evaluation, we are checking a few things. We're checking, you know, the menstrual cycle history that tells us about ovulation regularity if the hormone axis is working. We look at um, the fallopian tubes to make sure that they're open and healthy. We look at the ovarian um, follicle count, which is a ultrasound that basically counts the number of eggs within the ovary. So we can tell a woman whether she has an average number of eggs low or high, and that tells us a little bit about how they might respond to hormones. Of course, the male factor part, the only test we really have for men is the semen analysis. Not fair. Which is not great, <laughs> I know. Um, and even that test isn't great. It's not telling us everything. It's not telling us if the sperm work. It just tells us that they look normal or there are enough of them. Um, and, and, then, and there's the uterus. And, and of course, if there are any fibroids or structural things in the uterus that could impede implantation or cause miscarriage, and that's something that can be evaluated and taken care of surgically potentially prior to getting pregnant. But to go back to the question, um, you know, another layer of complexity to understanding the uterus is on a kind of a more genetic level. So in order for an embryo to actually implant into the uterus, there has to be this sort of crosstalk between the, the embryo and all this sort of these um, adhesion or sticky kind of molecules that are being expressed on the outside of the embryo and the uterus, which actually kind of creates an environment that's going to allow that embryo to implant. So there has to be this perfect synchrony between those two processes in order for an embryo to successfully implant. So when we do an embryo transfer cycle for women in IVF, you can't just put that embryo in at any time of her cycle. There is so much precision to that. Um, in terms of how much estrogen she gets, how much progesterone she gets, and when that embryo is put in. So, you know, for a lot of women who go through IVF, they do embryo transfers and they're not successful. So then we start to question, is there an issue with the synchrony between the embryo and the uterus? And the ERA test, or endometrial receptivity array test, is essentially looking at that question. Is there an issue between the synchrony of the embryo and the uterus that's making it difficult for that embryo to stick? Is it just the wrong time for that embryo to be there? So the ERA is answering that question. The receptiva test is another kind of molecular test oh, on the uterus. different tests. Okay. Different tests oh, completely. Like, but oh, they're, they're the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they're done the same way. You take a little biopsy of the uterine tissue and you can actually, what I often do is 
I'll take the same sample and send them off for both tests. So you get both done at the same time. But the receptiva test is looking at the question of endometriosis because, you know, in a different mechanism, it's affecting the sort of receptivity or this idea that the, the uterus is going to be um, in a favorable environment for the embryo to stick. And so for women who have endometriosis, it's kind of an inflammatory condition. So it's going to create inflammatory markers that might make the embryo unable to stick. So that test is looking at endometriosis in the pelvic kind of anatomy. And if a woman does test positive for that, there's some treatments that include either Lupron, which you might've heard of that maybe is in the oncology setting too, but that's a medication that you use to suppress the hormones of the reproductive system that kind of suppresses the endometriosis. Um, or a woman can undergo surgery to actually remove the endometriosis and they're both you know, equivalent ways to take care of the underlying issue. But the bottom line is they're two different tests, but they're, they're kind of next level testing for a woman who doesn't necessarily have to do them at the beginning of an IVF okay. process. This is if she's failed multiple embryo transfers and, you know, it's kind of a subset of, of women in the IVF population that have more difficulty conceiving. And that's because it's like a send out genetic test. It's very expensive and yeah. most likely not needed for the majority of patients. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's enough testing already. To... <laughs> enough. And enough expense, too. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Okay, so that was, like, I was seeing that one cycle of IVF um, nationally can cost, like, between ten and $15,000, but that some couples need multiple rounds, and that's why it's so expensive. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's on the lower end, ten to 15000 Yeah, I think nationally, so that's, like, an item. Yes, so I would say, I mean, that doesn't include medication costs. So medications, unfortunately, are another three to $5,000. So you're looking at close to eighteen dollars to $20,000 for a cycle if you include everything. And I think it's important when any couple is, you know, choosing a clinic that they have a lot of transparency around talking about the financials because I can't tell you how many times when I've been in different practices that patients have been so upset to hear that there were all these hidden costs and their bill was so much higher than they thought. I mean, if you add genetic testing to the IVF cycle, that's another four to $6,000. So, I mean, it adds up. We are so fortunate in the Bay Area. Um, and I don't know how it is where you are. You're in Seattle? No, I'm here. I work with your husband. It's oh my gosh, that's right. For some reason, <laughs> I thought there was some link to Seattle. Okay, um, I'm sorry. I've so, been so... to Seattle before. Okay. And that is where, um, what is Edward and Bella, Twilight? That was oh yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it, but you know, Seattle. Uh, but but actually, even even you know, a lot of states uh, have either mandates, so insurance mandates, so they can cover a big bulk of the cost of IVF, or we're lucky to have all these tech companies that are very generous with fertility benefits. So I would it's say it's interesting, isn't it? The tech companies offering fertility benefits. It is. It is. And I, and I think overall, it's a net very positive thing for, yeah. for women. I know a lot of people had concerns that, oh, are they just trying to, you know, promote women delaying childbearing even further and having them mm -hmm. work, you know, in the prime of their 20s and 30s and, <laughs> and work really hard for their employer. But I think that these, you know, doing IVF and doing fertility preservation is something that, you know, a lot of couples would have needed anyway. Um, so I think that the fact that they're offering huge 
you know, financial incentives um, to, to, you know, to do treatment without having to worry about the financial burden is, is great. Um, but, but yes, it's, it's very costly. And unfortunately, it can be cost prohibitive for a lot of couples to do it. And I think all fertility providers, I think, feel very strongly that there should be more coverage, either by insurance companies or by employers and because we never want cost to be an issue in our conversations with patients to decide what treatment's best for them. And we certainly don't want anyone to not have the chance to have children um, because, it, because it was too expensive for them to do that. Yeah, it really is unfair. And when you think about it, the only other medical field, so to speak, that I can think of that's so like cost dependent is cosmetic surgery and cosmetic procedures. And that's just it's insane. It's like you want to start a family, you need medical treatment versus yes. like you want yes. Botox. And why would you, the patient, be so financially responsible? That's just yeah. And I and I think what, what we're trying to really send the message out to everyone is that infertility is a disease. You know, IVF is not elective. These couples <laughs> need IVF to get pregnant. So I think I know you're there. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. They're hard to get um, used to. I got some too, and they're like, it's funny. I'm home alone, so I don't, I didn't have to wear them this time. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, we're, 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 you know, in terms of getting uh, insurance companies on board and tech companies on board, I think a large part of the message from us has been this is a disease. IVF is absolutely needed for couples to get pregnant, and it should be a treatment option, just like, you know, chemotherapy is for someone with cancer you know it's 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 important sure. Alyssa just asked it feels like infertility is becoming more common have you noticed this trend as well during your time as a doctor or my response or thought, first thought is that maybe people are having kids in older ages because they're there's more women in the workforce or definitely there, there's no question about it that you know right now the stats are one in eight couples are going to encounter infertility um, but that might even be higher because so much of infertility is underdiagnosed um, and couples never would even that um, you know as you said and a lot of the reasons are related to women in the workforce delaying childbearing um, for, for a number of different reasons, but often career related, uh, but maybe not finding the partner until later in life. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, from a biological standpoint, our peak fertility is in our late 20s and early 30s. And, you know, for a, for a lot of couples, especially I think in metropolitan cities and coastal areas, you know, the average age of getting married and starting a family is not until your mid thirties. That's so funny. Cause I used to work, live at the beach and it was like, nobody's worried about monogamy and dating. They're like surfing and smoking weed. Not everybody that lives at the beach, but that was my experience. Actually, Dr. Right, Dr. different priorities. My neighbor, when I lived at the beach ended up dating Lady Gaga and she was I had just moved out, but my roommate stayed, and she got to stay next to Lady Gaga and her boyfriend. Yeah, wow, I'm jealous. And there was also <laughs> during that time an article on Vanity Fair that they said they wanted to make love in paint, and so I was like, Rebecca, this is what your neighbors are doing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe ignorance is the best. I get off track. Um, so. Just to circle back to like just a couple who has normal regular menstrual cycles, really wants to get pregnant now, like 
um, what tips would you have for somebody mm -hmm. in that situation? Yeah. They, if so, they want to like, they, you know, oh, I want four kids. So go to the doctor, go to your primary care doctor, ask for blood work, a, a pelvic ultrasound, you said. Um, yes. And then so, my doc, my husband never goes to the doctor. So if this was me before I had kids, I would just be like, <laughs> go ask your doctor for a semen analysis, basically. <laughs> Right. So, so the, the, you know, the bottom line is that you want to optimize as many things as you can. Um, so that starts with eating healthy, um, exercising, and getting your body in the best physical and mental state to get pregnant. Um, so from an exercise standpoint, we recommend um, 150 minutes of exercise a week. So that's 30 minutes a day, five days a week, if you can. Um, and with eating, it's eating, you know, a, a nutritious diet, well-balanced, lots of whole grains, um, actually limiting red meat intake uh, has been shown to potentially have a positive impact on fertility. Um, but, you know, that aside, prenatal vitamins is going to help supplement whatever you're deficient in. And the main thing that a lot of women need more of is folic acid. So if you're thinking about getting pregnant, you want to get on that prenatal vitamin in at least a couple months in advance, if possible. Um, and the other things that you kind of alluded to are, are lab tests. So checking your thyroid, you know, there's um, some, some reproductive hormone testing that you can do, making sure that your, you know, your, your blood pressure is well, you know, good and that you don't have any prediabetes or diabetes that can be checked with a blood test as well. So there's kind of a, a series of tests that you can do that are easy blood tests that can just ensure that you're healthy to get pregnant. Um, the other thing that's becoming a little bit more common these days is a genetic carrier screen. Um, this is the idea that, you know, while we might be healthy, we might be carriers for genetic conditions that could be passed along to our children. And if we happen to have a partner who also carries that genetic trait, for example, cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. So most people don't know that they have a cystic fibrosis gene that they're carrying because you actually have to have two copies to have the effect to have the disease and we all have two copies of every gene inherited from our mother and father mm -hmm. but if you're um if you have a child with someone who's also a cystic fibrosis carrier there's a 25 percent chance that you could have a child with the disease so um the American College of OBGYN recommends that all couples who are considered considering getting pregnant undergo genetic carrier screening, at least for the more common conditions. Yeah. And now a lot of these companies like Natera, um, you know, these big tech, um, you know, Genentech and, and companies like that who are who are trying to uh, do more genetic testing to understand pregnancy risk, they actually have panels that are two, three, four hundred diseases that you can do in a single blood test that test to see whether you are a carrier for one of these traits. And if you are, then there's some options. Um, we can talk about that if people have more questions. But the bottom line is being informed, being well informed going into a pregnancy that you might be at risk. Um, for some people who find that, that, you know, maybe they're at risk for cystic fibrosis in their child, they might do IVF because IVF is able to do genetic testing of embryos to ensure that uh, the pregnancy is not affected. So, but that's, that's another thing you can do to get ready um, for pregnancy. The other things are limiting alcohol intake, um, decreasing caffeine. You don't have to eliminate it. Many, many people survive on caffeine. Um, so, you know, a cup of coffee a day, totally fine. Um, and, uh, you know, I think again, lifestyle factors can be optimized. You can do some lab tests and sort of just check in to make sure that you're 
in the right place physically and mentally to get pregnant. And, and there's some easy ways to do that with your primary care doctor or OBGYN. I'm definitely going to watch this back and maybe I'll do like a quick post so that people can reference all of it. Like if you want to yeah. get pregnant, here's the checklist kind of thing. Um, you mentioned one thing that actually my friend in Australia was asking me about. She was saying, my friend came over and was telling me that she's taking these designer prenatal vitamins and they don't have folic acid. They have, I'm, I believe she's referring to folate instead. Um, and that folic acid is really bad. Um, no, thoughts? I mean, folate <laughs> is basically the natural source of, of the vitamin and folic acid is a synthetic form. So they're both Fine. I mean, I always tell patients that, you know, eating lots of leafy green vegetables is the best source of it. But some people can't get enough that way. So taking a prenatal vitamin with folic acid is perfectly fine. Um, and, and every prenatal vitamin is going to have more than enough that you need. So I'd recommend not taking more than, than one prenatal vitamin a day because <laughs> the prenatal vitamin actually has other things that you don't want to take too much of. Yeah. Like vitamin A, which potentially can cause birth defects if, if taken in too high consumption. Yeah. And there's, mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of like rumors around folic acid. I'm thinking that that maybe had to do with the MTHFR. I've had a lot of oncology mm. patients ask about that actually, but um, yeah. So folic acid is fine. fine. Okay, cool. Um, so I shared a picture of the woman who was 61 years old who carried her son's baby um, and when I first saw that, I was like, how is that possible? She is old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that I hadn't um, seen that until you sent it to me. So that oh, was, really? um, that was interesting. You don't see that very often. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, the, uh, I wanted to tell the viewers that um, going back to our endocrinology 101, the, the uterus is basically just a an organ that responds to hormones from the ovary. So if the ovary is not producing any more hormones, which happens in a postmenopausal state, mm -hmm. if you take exogenous hormones through estrogen, progesterone, and other ways through medications, the uterus can work perfectly normally. So a postmenopausal woman can get pregnant. Um, in fact, I believe the oldest woman to get pregnant um, was in her 70s. Um, but there are many other reasons that you should not be getting pregnant after a certain age. Uh, this was an exception because we'll talk about this, the situation, but you know, there's also when your body ages, there's, there's vascular issues. There is, you know, other things that can make the pregnancy extremely high risk. So in general, um, in terms of what the ASRM, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine recommends for, um, you know, for, for clinics to feel, uh, comfortable treating a patient, the age cutoff is 55. Now, most 55. clinics probably have a lower cutoff than that, but, um, okay. but, but that's the technical age cutoff. Now, in this situation, um, I believe this, this woman had a, a son who was gay, and so they, they needed to use a, a gestational carrier, and yes. using a surrogate or gestational carrier is extremely expensive. It runs you about 150000 to $150,000. What? It is very expensive. Yes. But the carrier, and, the surrogate doesn't get that much money. That's so, all then. Well, the surrogate will get some of that. And then there's an agency, like a third party agency that's facilitating all the care between the IVF clinic and the, the, the surrogate. So they get a big chunk of that as well. Um, so it's, it's really expensive. Um, the other thing to know is that different states 
have different um, kind of regulations around using gestational carriers. So some comp some states are not as um, as uh, progressive uh, as progressive. Um, in terms of offering surrogacy to same-sex couples, unfortunately. Um, but so so, but but back to this story. Um, according well, to the eight really quickly to go on that. So my old physician, he was gay. He had a surrogate, and he was saying that if she gave birth in her home state, that she would have to give the baby up for adoption to them. Basically, like she was given the rights as as there, they, the, yeah. the state just viewed her as the mother. There are a lot of legal complexities to using surrogates in general, and then to add on top of that in same-sex couples. So whenever we go through what we call third-party reproduction in, in fertility, which is in using a surrogate, using an egg donor, there has to be, that's what we call it. <laughs> yep, that's the term. But we have to, there, there has to be some legal counsel. There, there is a reproductive lawyer that's involved with doing contracts and things like that. So that there's no surprises when the baby's born and you know, uh, things like that, if there's any issues along the way in the pregnancy that could, um, could be complex. So but but going back to the story, um, for that couple, so according to the ASRM, what they say about using a family member, um, in this oh, case, yeah. the mother as a as a surrogate, it is ethically acceptable. Okay. Is it recommended? Probably not so much for a variety of reasons. One, again, she's, she was older, she has she's going to have a much higher risk pregnancy than someone who is in her even 30s or 40s. The, the general uh, age range for surrogates is 25 to 42. Um, 42 so the, yeah, 42 is the cutoff. Older range. Older okay. range, yeah. Um, and, uh, but that's one reason. Also, and I've seen this in my practice, using a family member, there can, there can be some issues around the, the relationship being under tension, for example, if the outcome of the embryo transfer is not good, or if there's a miscarriage, it, it can create some potential conflicts in relationships with the family. That's not nothing you ever want to have to worry about if it's your sibling or mother. So in general, we, if there is an option to, to use an independent surrogate or gestational carrier, then that's what we recommend. But like I said, it is cost prohibitive for many couples. Um, and for this couple, I mean, they really wanted to feel like you know, their family could nurture this child. It could be someone in their family to do it. And it was really special. I think I was reading the article. I think one couple used um, one, one of the, um, uh, the men used his sperm and then the other person's sister used her egg. So essentially all people in the family were, were used in various ways, the uterus, the egg, the sperm to create this <laughs> child. And it was really, you know, just a beautiful thing that they could do that our technology is able to, to do that um, and create yeah. families in, in this really non-traditional way. I think it's beautiful. And I, I, mean, really and I love the, the story, it's heartwarming. The man's sister, so it's the two men who are married. So his sister, well, I don't mean, <laughs> yes. his yes. sister gave her eggs. So basically as a gay couple, that's as close as they can get to what their genetic child would look like basically exactly. I had to read it a, co a couple times because I was like wait it, it's not the brother and sister who like, these two that gave there. I was like it's yes. Okay. yes yes and that's something that the ASRM is pretty firm on in their recommendations too there can't be any like consanguinity which is like you know any relationship between the egg and the sperm because then well, there's many reasons that you shouldn't do that but from a from a from a, from a health standpoint there's higher risk for genetic issues in the child as well. Okay. 
God. So what are the yeah. other reasons? I'm curious. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we all know. Um, so I was just like checking in on Octomom last night. She's doing very well. She's changed her name to Natalie. She wants to get away from the Octomom whole situation. But um, that was, I remember that being controversial when that happened because I think they implanted six embryos and they, or I, I forget, it was a large number of embryos that yes. they implanted. Yes. And at the time they were saying there's no laws around that. Have the laws changed? How many embryos do you usually put in at once? Like, was that really bad what they did yeah I had to go back and and look at the the Octomom story again because I think it was in 2009 yeah. she had actually had six children prior to that pregnancy um mm -hmm. and I believe there are two sets of twins all through IVF and in any case um this was down in, in Los Angeles and a clinic down in Beverly Hills and they uh, uh you know per her request he, this physician had transferred, I believe, 12 embryos. Oh, oh yes. Which at the time, I believe she was in her early 20s. Okay. And that is absolutely unethical. Um, and that physician had his license revoked. I don't, I don't believe he practices anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, no, you could not do that, you know. <laughs> why because, I mean it's, and, it's obvious but why would you not do that okay so so there is so every clinic in the United States actually now has to uh, report all of their outcomes to the a national organization called SART the Society of Assistive Reproductive Technology so any anybody can actually go to the website and look at um, outcomes they can look at twin pregnancy rates and, and we can talk a little bit about that but in general the goal of IVF in any clinic should be healthy mom healthy baby and the best way to do that is a singleton pregnancy, carrying one at a time, even twins, even though it's a lot higher in, in IVF because we are transferring multiple embryos. Um, it's not our preference for a woman to get pregnant with twins. It's, it's a higher risk pregnancy to both the mother and the babies. Mm -hmm. So um, going back to SART, they actually will do random audits of clinics if they see, oh, this clinic has a really high you know, twin rate or triplet rate, they can actually audit the, the clinic and, you know, potentially there can be some repercussions of that. So, you know, they're, they're, the clinics have the incentive to try to optimize singleton pregnancies as much as possible. And, you know, there are some very, very clear guidelines on how many embryos to transfer based on a woman's age and her embryos, whether they've been genetically tested and the quality of them, whatnot. And so, um, although that's not like sort of a mandate, it's an extremely strong recommendation. And so, um, you know, physicians are still able to sort of make that decision with the patient. And, it, you know, in a 43, 44 year old, it might be appropriate to transfer three, four, five embryos, but not in a younger woman. That's absolutely a no-no. It's extremely high risk. There's a high, high chance of multiple, high order multiples, which again, luckily for her, all of her babies survived um, and are now healthy and doing well. I believe they're like close to 11 years old now. Um, but, but, you know, in most situations, even with triplet, quadruplets, you know, there can be potentially the risk of a fetal death or even, you know, just uh, long-term complications for those babies because of the risk of prematurity and being born so early. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So five is the most anyone should ever be implanted with. Five, yeah, five is sort of where ASRM starts to, in, in older women, and they don't really have recommendations for women over 42, I believe, in their practice bulletin. But that's when we sort of just ha have it informed 
decision-making conversation with our patients saying, you know, this is the risk of having multiples if we transfer this many embryos. And we, you know, have a very in-depth conversation with patients about that. And we also really talk to patients about whether they're comfortable if they did get pregnant with triplets or, or higher, that they would feel comfortable with the selective reduction procedure, which is a situation no patient wants to ever be in. But again, for the health of their pregnancy, sometimes it is safer if they do get pregnant with a higher um, order multiple pregnancy to reduce that down to a, a, a singleton or a twin pregnancy. So that's part of the consenting. It is, yeah. 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 I know, they. I mean, when normal couples who don't have to deal with any of that just have sex, they don't have to think about any of these awful decisions or questions. But unfortunately, if couples have any kind of infertility problems, then there, I mean, the amount of questions that, you know, would you be okay with this? What do you want to do with your embryos if there's extra? Like all of these things, they have to basically become like bioethicists overnight <laughs> and make all of these like awful decisions that, you know, they just want a baby more than anything. So then I know, I know I, what the thought of eliminating yes. a pregnancy is like, yes, yeah. I mean, the consent forms and IVF not only go through those things, but also you know, in the event that, uh, you know, one of the, you know, if somebody passes away, like, what would you want the disposition of your embryos to be or in the event of a divorce or separation. So unfortunately, couples are faced with going through these scenarios at the very beginning of the process, which is adding stress on top of an already stressful process. But yes, the consent forms are Literally, my husband and I can never agree on how many kids we want. Like, I'm always like, four, and he's like, two, and I'm like, let's settle for three. But that, I mean, like, we can't even agree on a number that we would theoretically want. So then I don't know how couples who are already under so much stress um, have to then, like, keep their marriage alive as they're making these, like, insane decisions. Yeah, it puts an extreme amount of stress on marriages, and, you know, we, we've unfortunately seen this be the reason that couples separate, if, especially if the IVF outcome is not in their favor. And I, I recommend it doesn't happen a lot, but it happens. And and I always recommend uh, some sort of counseling, uh, whether it be therapy or couples counseling, as they're going through this process because it's stressful. It's I stressful. Can see why? Yeah. Mm -hmm. for sure. Man, and very isolating. Like that was yeah. I was asking the couples. Maybe I'll ask you now if you because you kind of get the other side of the patients where they're coming in and it's a really difficult time. Like, what do you think um, is most difficult for people going through IVF? And then as somebody who hasn't gone through IVF, like, obviously I have this article from patients that are a lot of things to help support them, but is there something like from a doctor's point of view that you, you've heard that maybe like a pattern of patients sharing with you, I don't know, something that was helpful or something that mm. was hurtful? Mm-hmm. I think that the hardest thing um, for couples is just, uh, you know, when, when the outcome doesn't go in their favor and when they weren't prepared for that. So, you know, I, I try to be really candid with, with every, all my patients about what the outcomes might look like, you know, and just be realistic about it. You know, it, even for a younger couple uh, under 35, the idea of success rates are maybe around 40, 50%. That means half the time it's not going to work and they need to do a second cycle. But if, I didn't tell them up front and then their first cycle fails, they're devastated. But I think um, they take a slightly lower hit if, if they kind of knew that going into it. So I think managing expectations and going in really informed about what the possible outcomes might look like is really important to help prevent that. Um, and I think what I also 
always encourage my patients to know is that there's always going to be a plan B. There's always a way to build your family. Um, we hope that they can have biological kids, but if we've exhausted the IVF option using their own eggs, there's always the option of using donor eggs or donor embryos. Um, if they can't carry a pregnancy, there's always the option of using a surrogate um, or adopting a child. So there is always a way to build your family. It may not be in the way that you always envisioned it, but I think what I always try to help patients understand is that you can get there, you know, and, and, and I'm going to you know, do everything I can to, to make it the way that they always hoped and dreamed it would be. But sometimes, you know, even with the best of technologies, that's not possible. But I think the bottom line is just understanding the process and being informed and knowing what the outcomes might look like. And, you know, I think it's hard for a lot of couples to see their friends getting pregnant and they're getting invited to baby showers and, you know, birth, getting birth announcements in the mail. And, and that's, that's hard. They're, they're going through their social media and they're seeing just tons of baby pictures. That's just, that's just a huge trigger. Um, and so what I, what I tell those patients is that it's okay to just remove yourself from all that, maybe unplug from social media, maybe decline those offers to attend a baby child. That's okay. You know, it's okay. Find a tribe of people that are going through something similar. And, you know, there are organizations, there's Facebook groups um, in the Bay Area. There's actually an infertility Facebook group, I believe, um, that, that provides support for one another. Resolve is an organization that provides support groups. And unfortunately, with the pandemic, I think that's been more difficult. But, but I think there's a lot of online platforms for couples to uh, people to connect. And I know Instagram has been a great way for people to connect with not only their doctors, but other people going through it. And yeah. it's really, it's really, it's really awesome that they, they've got this um, tribe of people who understand. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, Self-care is really important going through the process. Just, you know, not forgetting the things that bring you joy, uh, whether that's whatever activity they do or spending time with their partner, you, you know, just not losing sight of those things that give them joy and taking care of themselves through the process is really important. Um, and, you know, just having faith that there, there is a way one way or another to be, to become a parent. Mm. Yeah. Ashley and Justin, yeah. who I interviewed, who did the frozen embryo adoption, were saying that they tried to like keep humor with things and with the injections, they'd like seeing hit me with your best shot and just kind of like <laughs> trying to keep things light or when they I think they had to travel quite a distance to go to their fertility clinic too. And they'd like make it a date night and get a hotel there and kind of try to do what they can. The to, yeah. yeah, yeah. You got to have a sense of humor. There's a lot of um, I think accounts and, and YouTube videos of couples going through it that, you know, poke fun at certain parts of the process. And it's, it's good to get a laugh in every now and then you, you have to have a sense of humor. Otherwise, it's, it's it can be depressing. But it's heavy. yeah, it's yeah. heavy. It is. It is. For but sure. I think knowing people who are going through it, and feeling the same way is, you know, it, it's comforting in some ways. And, it's you know, funny. like I said, yeah. go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, going back to that statistic, one in eight, you know, some, some say one in six, it's, that's often, that's yeah. extremely common rather. And so many couples may not be forthcoming about sharing that, but, you know, probably somebody that you know is going through it, even yeah, though they may absolutely. not have shared it. So, yes, so all common. of the people that I know personally who have gone through IVF, didn't share until they were either like well into the process or even way after if it didn't work. So it's like, it's so sad because it's, as you and I've talked about, it's so stressful. It puts so much strain on your marriage, which is your main supportive person. You need so much support, but 
a lot of couples, it's very private or they haven't really processed mm -hmm. it. It's so overwhelming. They don't want to include other people, which is totally understandable. But um, that's just, it's hard too. If you don't know that your friend is going through infertility, then I, I think that was hard too. like reading how hurtful some of the things can be like announcing your pregnancy in a big group. If you didn't know that someone there mm -hmm. had infertility and that would really be a trigger for them. Like it's hard. Yeah. That's, that's so hard. Yeah. And it's hard to know how to support your friends going through infertility if you don't know that they're going through infertility, I guess. Yeah, for sure. But um, that was one thing actually that every single woman that I asked, you know, how can someone support you was, um, not being like having these surprise pregnancy announcements from their friends. Like if, if somebody gets pregnant, just saying, Hey, I want to let you know one-on-one, -on -one. um, maybe texting might even be better so that the person can kind of like, if they need to cry or grieve, like they're not like put on the spot. Um, yeah. but that it was something, I think that's just come up. Like for me, even my sister has shared that she went through IVF and so you're always like, I want to be sensitive or different friends going through infertility. You want to tell them, but then you almost feel guilty. Like, you know, I have some news, but it, it's hard. But I think yeah. definitely not spinning it on them in public is <laughs> good. For yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, we have a few questions. Oh gosh, we are almost out of time. Ah, you're just so easy to talk to and you're so knowledgeable. Um, okay. Let's say, let's, I, it seems like, um, actually we've, we've, I had, I had, yeah, it's, it's, um, okay. We've actually gone through most of the questions. I've just okay. gone out of order. <laughs> and there's a few questions that I got through my Instagram account, which after oh. we finish yours, I can. Yes. I, can I mean, I think about. to summarize, cause we've done quite a few of these, um, secondary infertility, cause we have like mm -hmm. exactly 10 minutes left. So if you just yes. really quickly want to hit on secondary infertility, um, and there was one question about like somebody had trouble getting pregnant the first time saying, Oh, now is the second time going to be easier. I guess. Can you just quickly touch on, is it easier to get pregnant if you've already been pregnant or how often does secondary infertility happen? Secondary infertility is extremely common. Um, you know, it's more common than I think people, people think or believe. And the, the primary reason is that a woman is now several years older and age is mm -hmm. the primary factor that, that dictates fertility rates. And so, um, you know, especially if a couple started their first, they had their first child in their mid thirties, now they're going to be in their late thirties. And again, the incidence of infertility is going to be a lot higher um, okay. in, in a woman's late thirties and early forties. So very, very common. Um, and just because you've had one baby doesn't mean it's going to be easy the next time. It's, it's certainly going to be harder. Um, and it might, it might take a few extra months or, you know, they may need fertility treatment, but the bottom line is that just because you've had a healthy pregnancy in the past, doesn't mean that it's going to be easy the next time. In fact, it's more likely than not that it's going to take a little bit longer, um, than the first attempt. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hit us with your questions. <laughs> Somebody asked about, so I'm really interested in, uh, getting the word out about egg freezing and fertility preservation, I think for a lot of single women or even couples who want to delay childbearing for a variety of reasons, um, that egg freezing and embryo freezing is a very effective viable option for them. Um, one woman asked about, you know, does the process of freezing the egg impact the viability? Is it safe for the egg? What is, what are the safety concerns overall? And what I'll reassure that patient woman about is that, um, 
you know, maybe 10 years ago, my answer to your question would have been a little bit different. I would have told you that, yes, maybe the risk of the egg is, is that it might damage it in the process that when we actually saw your eggs, maybe only half of them will survive. But the technology has advanced so much in the last decade that we're now looking at survival rates of the eggs that are over 95% um, because wow. we've changed the method in which we freeze the egg. Um, and so that's, that's good news. And that's why uh, in 2014, the ASRM actually lifted the experimental label off egg freezing because at one, we had enough data saying that this is a really great method to have successful live births for women who may not be ready at a certain time, but maybe ready later on in life. Um, and there was a lot of good safety data around um, the children that were conceived using frozen eggs. So there wasn't a higher risk of birth defects or any higher risks in the pregnancy. So all of that data came about and the ASRM said, okay, Initially, actually, we only offered it to cancer patients or patients who were going to be receiving treatment that was going to compromise their fertility. And that's really 10 years ago what we were only doing egg freezing and embryo freezing for. But nowadays, we're just offering it more broadly, and it's, it's um, becoming more and more utilized. Um, and it's probably 20% of our practice now is fertility preservation, which is amazing. This um, is actually really quickly, because um, for cancer patients, like we usually, like for leukemia, for example, they have to get started ASAP. Um, yeah. How long does getting some, like extracting eggs from somebody take and how expensive is it? Yes. So um, it takes about two weeks to do okay. an ovarian stimulation and egg retrieval. And oftentimes we have a two week window from diagnosis to treatment onset for cancer patients. So this is where having you know, the oncologist and the reproductive endocrinologist be, you know, a team on this and communicate with each other about all of this information about treatment start dates can be really important. So when I was at Stanford, um, there was really great communication between the departments to help facilitate rapid, you know, IVF cycles in that two week window. Um, and so it's, it's certainly possible if that, you know, we never want it to compromise treatment. So if treatment needs to start like you know, in a day or two, we're never going to tell that oncologist, can you just wait two weeks? We would never do anything to compromise the outcome for that patient in terms of their, their cancer. But, but in most cases, and I would say we see a lot of, you know, leukemia, lymphoma, and breast cancer are probably the most common ones that we see. There's usually a two-week window that we have. Um, in terms of cost, there's a lot of uh, programs that actually help pay for the cost of medication. So a lot of pharma companies actually just uh, it's part of their philanthropy that they that they offer free medications to patients and um, clinics like, for example, ours, we offer heavily discounted cycles for them. We don't want it to be a, a cost issue for them not to do it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but but back to sort of safety for that patient who asked the question there, there really isn't any data to suggest that freezing the egg has any harm to the egg, there's healthy babies conceived from frozen eggs, um, and that it doesn't matter the duration of how long that egg was frozen or embryo was frozen, it could be a year or 10 years. Um, sorry, my son is coming in to the room, one second. Uh, Mommy? <laughs> Mommy? Yes, I'll be done in two minutes. Yeah, I'll get you back, man, as soon as I'm done. <laughs> Dr. Shaw, he just said oncologists <laughs> everywhere appreciate us both. <laughs> <laughs> and Batman. And Batman. Sorry about that. No, um, that's okay. <laughs> I have my baby too. Oh, so cute. <laughs> so cute. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. There's but, programs oh. for egg 
freezing. Oh, oh yeah. and they and they the can stay frozen for a long time. Indefinitely. But really indefinitely? And then yeah. like yeah. what happens? Do do egg okay, I know we're like down to four minutes, but once there's an embryo frozen somewhere, do they can't destroy it? That they never get destroyed or something? Like if you no. stop paying yeah. your fees, what happens? <laughs> well, um, so 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 uh, interesting fact uh, or case is that a, there was a, a baby conceived of a frozen embryo that frozen egg or frozen embryo that had been frozen for twenty five years. Wow. Yeah. Um, That's so so, nuts. so yeah. You're born so, in like three different decades than when yeah. you're conceived. Yes. Yes. Wow. Um, but in terms of uh, disposition of embryos, so there's a consent form that that all couples or patients have to sign, which um, say in the event of X, Y, or Z, um, how would you want us to dispose of it? The options are discarding the embryos, donating them to research, donating, donating them to a, an embryo bank or egg bank. And so that's all laid out. Now, if someone hasn't paid their dues, um, then we're not going to discard their embryos. Um, we'll, we'll probably, you know, give them uh, several opportunities before we have to do that. But in our cl clinic, we have, we have never done that. And of course, patients will provide their contact information if we can't reach them. Um, you know, if they've moved or something, we're usually able to track them down, but we won't discard them. Um, but typically in the consent form, that would be one of the things that they sign off of. If we haven't heard from them or they haven't paid that, you know, we would have the, you know, um, the ability to discard or, you know, not use their embryos. You're like, excuse me, you forgot your frozen embryos. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. Do you yeah. have maybe like one more question that someone sent you? We're down to three minutes and Instagram um, like is going to make us say goodbye. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So the, somebody asked about transfer success rates with using donor embryos. Oh. Um, just a quick point on that is that for couples who are not able to use their own eggs um, and, and for most, for most couples, that's women who are in their forties who did several IVF cycles that didn't work. They use donor eggs or donor embryos. The, the good news for those women is that the success rate of the cycle is, does not depend on their age. It depends on the age of the egg, not even the age of the sperm, but the age of the egg and the age of that embryo. And so the success rate is always going to be that. So if a 42-year-old woman transfers an embryo from an uh, embryo that was created using a donor that was 28, her success rate is going to be 60-70%. Um, and, and so that goes for uh, this patient particular patient said her donor embryo was um, created from a donor that was 28. So yes, the success rate would be that high. Um, that's like that's, the mom who carried her son's kid. She was 61, but the viability yep. is that of her daughter. Exactly. Daughter. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's the good news for the donor egg option is that it, um, it's extremely effective and um, doesn't depend on the age of the woman carrying the pregnancy. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, we probably have to go, but but I just want to just quickly just tell every, all the viewers that um, you feel, you're welcome to reach out to me for any questions. Um, I think my handle um, is, is on the, you can see it there, but it's doc, dr underscore Mira Shah. Yes. And so um, I and post I'm going to share this. This will always be on my account. You, they can always find it. It's a post and then it will also be under okay. Instagram live and I'll send it to you so you can Great. get the link. So people, you can even like text it to people, but it will always survive. It won't okay. have the text at the bottom, but they can always view this. Great. Um, and, and I post a lot on, on fertility topics and answer questions from people, um, you know, all the time. So I just want to know that there's a big community of us out there, REIs, that are, are using Instagram as a platform to educate, inform, 
and empower women and couples who are going through infertility. So don't, um, don't hesitate to reach out to me or any of my colleagues. So that's what we're here for. Absolutely. Thank you yeah. so much for what you do for patients and for, you know, I know Instagram as what I do myself, it's like you're donating your time. So thank you for donating your time to me yeah. and to all of the pop ladies and people who have been yeah. with you. Thank you too. Just a wealth of this. knowledge. And it was so nice spending my Saturday morning with you. <laughs> I woke up early Likewise. for the first time and I'm like a new woman. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I hope people didn't miss out on the, the change in time.